Good morning. Did you hear me? Did you hear me? Did you hear me? Well, I'm not up here by myself, as you can tell. I got a wonderful, good-looking bunch up here. Our Praise Makers Choir is going to begin our worship this morning by singing a song. So give them your attention. job. So this is our K through fifth grade Praise Makers Choir. Last year, 
is in like before the summer, they fit over here. And now they take up the whole stage. Uh, so if you're like, man, I have a K through fifth grader and I would love for them to be in the choir. They practice Wednesday nights uh, from 6.15 to 7.15. And so um, I think they've got 29. What's another five or 10, right? 30, 40. Wanda's like, why not? So uh, thank you to our praise makers. All right, we got to give time for our praise team to get up here. So if you will stand and take a couple minutes and welcome those around you. Yeah. 
the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy.
be seated. We do believe that the Lord has already done great things here in this city and in surrounding cities, and we believe uh, that he's going to continue to do great things. Um, and we believe that he's going to use the church of Jesus Christ to do that. Amen? Amen. And uh, Northside gets to be part of that. We are one of many churches um, in the Western Baptist Association here over many counties and several different cities in Georgia, plus part of Georgia Baptist and Southern Baptist and international missionaries all around the world. And um, God is going forth and he is changing and saving lives. And uh, Northside gets to be a part of that. And so we're thankful that you're here today. If this is your first time with us, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you. If this is your first time in a long time, welcome back. We just had our new members uh, class. We had seven different households represented. Um, so praise the Lord for that. Amen. Amen. So we're, we're thankful uh, for that. And so just to remind you, because we need to be reminded, you know, we exist as a church, right? Our, our mission is to be disciples who make disciples, that we want you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, and then we want you to go make disciples. And so if you're looking for a church home, thank you for being here. If this is your first time with us, we would appreciate if you would let us know. You can do that a couple different ways. There's a QR code that you can scan in the bulletin or you can um, fill out a card out there in uh, the foyer. But as a church, we have four B's uh, that we try to emphasize that you maybe will see places and Right? We want to believe in Jesus Christ, right? believe in the, the authority of his word. We want um, you to belong. We want you to belong to a local church, a community. That's why we have a new members class. That's why we believe in membership, because there's something about a commitment, saying I'm committed to this body of Christ and, and being faithful to be here, to show up. And we talked about in the class, for many of you in this room, being faithful to church used to be you were there Sunday morning, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights. That was faithful. If you ask somebody if they're faithful today, they may say yes, and they go to church once a month. But, but that's how faithfulness has changed over the years. And so we want you to belong. We want you to become. We want you to become more like Christ in the way that you serve, in the way that you love, in the way that you care for other people. And then we want to go beyond, to go beyond these walls out into a lost world who needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are the light, right? We're the salt of the earth. And so the Lord is calling us and sending us to go. And so if you are not part of a church and you're looking to be part of a church and you have questions about Northside, don't hesitate to come see me and ask those. Love to have um, a conversation with you about that. Let me go ahead and make some announcements. Um, we have our men's ministry uh, coming up this Saturday uh, at 7.30. Uh, we're going to have to get started right at 7.30. So be here because we have upward um, and so a lot of people have to leave at 8.30 to go get ready for Upward. So that's at 7.30. We had an incredible first day of Upward yesterday. Um, it went well. So thank you to all of you who served. Um, lots of other things in here. We have a bridal shower for Miss Eden um, coming up here in a couple weeks. We want you to be aware of that. Coweta Pregnancy Services. The table's looking full out there. I went ahead and put some stuff underneath. Continue to bring stuff for the pregnancy center you have through September 24th. And then we've got our fall festival chili cook-off. I was talking to Steve about that. We're doing the chili cook-off again, and so he'll be making announcements about that. And if you're interested in being part of that, and I hope you are because it's delicious when you make chili, um, plus there are tags that you can pull off the connect board to bring stuff. You can sign up for the fall festival. It's a lot of fun. And also let me draw your attention. This will be in there for probably the next six to eight weeks. There are always going to be names for Upward. 
If you will, at some point throughout the week, just pray through those names. Today it's volunteers uh, from A through M, and then we'll add more volunteers next week. But just be in prayer for our volunteers for Upward and those who um, serve. Let me mention one uh, prayer need before we pray, and then the choir is going uh, to sing. I got a call from Miss Barbara Heestand, and then a text message from Tani. Uh, in the middle of the night, Miss Tani uh, had a heart attack. She is at Piedmont Noonan. Uh, they put a stint in. Um, everything is good, but they had to do that in the middle of the night. Um, and so thankful she recognized some symptoms and was able to call 911. But just continue to be in prayer for Miss Tani um, as she did have uh, a heart attack. And uh, for Barbara and the rest of the family, uh, it's, been a, it's been a tough year so far um, in, in 2023. So we want to lift them up. And there are many, many other needs um, as well in, in this church uh, that we need to be praying for. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then the choir uh, will sing um, this morning. Let's pray. Father, every week we gather, and we need to be reminded of your truth. And Lord, we just sang that you are the God of this city. Lord, remind us of that. Remind us that you are the God of not only the city, but the God of the state, the God that is ruling over this country, the God who is ruling over this world. Because, Lord, it would be easy to forget that if all we tuned into and looked at was the newspaper or television programming or maybe what pops up on our social media feed. Lord, it might be easy to forget that if all we heard were the stories of people in this church who were dealing with physical things or spiritual attacks or maybe mental health things, Lord, that are going on in their life, their marriages, their, their own personal hearts. Lord, it would be really easy to forget because we are surrounded by so much sin and so much brokenness and so much crisis and so much pain. But God, that's one reason why we gather, because we are quick to forget. And we need to be reminded every single week, multiple times throughout the week, God, that you are still on the throne, still ruling, still reigning, still saving, still transforming, still changing hearts and lives. And Lord, we ask you to do that again today. Please, oh Lord, you're gathered here with us. Your presence, the Holy Spirit in us as believers in Christ, your presence will fill this place. Lord, it's not a matter of Lord, will you meet us here? It's a matter of are we going to humble ourselves and focus our hearts and our minds upon you? So God, whatever is weighing heavy upon our hearts, whatever is distracting us, whatever is consuming us, oh God, this morning we want to lay it at your feet once again. Knowing full well, Lord, the temptation is going to be to pick it right back up tomorrow. But Lord, today we lay it before you. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would just move in this place, move in my heart, move in our hearts. Move now, Lord, as the choir sings. Once again, reminding us, Lord, of just who you are. And may we just be in awe and worship you. Father, we do pray for Tani. Lord, we know there's many needs um, in this church family, but this is, this is one that uh, is an urgent need. And thankful, Lord, for this morning, doctors and nurses and hospitals and emergency staff. Lord, the jobs that they do, many of them in this room doing these types of jobs. Thank you for them, Lord. They are so often your hands and your feet. 
Thank you for watching over Tani, for protecting her, for getting her the care that she needed quickly. And we continue just to pray for her recovery. We continue to pray, Father, for this family as they're grieving the loss of somebody, Lord, that they love so much. And others in this church who are still grieving, still processing so much in their heart and their life. Lord, we look to you because only you can satisfy. Only you can sustain us. Be with the choir now as they sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Amen, amen, amen. All right, our kiddos are going to make their way to Children's Church right now. Pre-K 3 and 4, and then our kindergarten through second grade as well. Everybody else, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 8, we're nearing the end of Esther. We'll be there this morning and then the next two weeks. Esther chapter 8, Esther chapter 8. Yogi Berra, not Yogi Bear, but (laughs) Yogi Berra, the New York Yankees catcher and legend. And I mentioned this before, he's known for all these, what they call Yogi-isms, Comments on life and baseball, there was many, and I think one Sunday morning I went through several of those, but one of the ones he's known for is the phrase, it ain't over till it's over. It ain't over till it's over. A whole lot has happened in the last three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of this incredible story in the book of Esther. And for a while, if you didn't know the story, maybe you thought, man, this, it's over, but it ain't over till it's over. In chapter 5, Esther approaches the king uninvited. She wins the favor of the king. She reveals her identity. She reveals the man behind the edict to wipe out her people. And Haman is killed at the end of chapter 7. And if you've never heard the story, you might think, all right, it's over. But it ain't over till it's over. For as we enter chapter 8, there is still this massive problem for the Jewish people. There is this edict sent out by Haman, who's now dead, with the king's approval, that the Jews would be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. And so as we work our way through chapter 8, one of the themes throughout this book has been this idea of sudden reversals, where things change. I want to draw your attention to three changes that we see in Esther chapter 8. So here's change number one. I want you to notice, and we see this in the first two verses, the immediate change, which will end up being a long-lasting change, you just don't know it quite yet, but the immediate change of Mordecai and Esther's future. And then we're going to look for a few minutes at the change in Esther's heart. So the change of Mordecai and Esther's future. There's a whole lot that happens in the first two verses. Let me read them and then I'll point them out to you. On that day, Esther chapter 8, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai, and Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. So just the first couple of verses. Haman is dead. Right, So we know that. Multiple commentaries point out that when a traitor or a criminal, condemned criminal, is dead, all that they had reverts back to the crown. So all that the king had given to Haman, now that Haman's dead, comes right back to the king. And we see that the king then gives it to Esther. Esther then reveals her relationship with Mordecai, that they're cousins, that, right, that Mordecai had been raising Esther because her parents had died. The king then gives Mordecai the ring. It's not Lord of the Rings, but it was a ring. The signet ring, right? Gives it to Mordecai, the very one that Haman had, the very one that he used to seal that edict. 
is now back to the king. The king gives that power, that authority that Haman once wielded now belongs to Mordecai. Then Esther puts Mordecai in charge of the house of Haman. All that in two verses. That's a lot. What a morning that would have been in the life of Esther and Mordecai. But we continue, and this is where I want you to notice the change of Esther's heart. Remember back to Esther chapter 4. Mordecai is pleading with Esther to go to the king on behalf of the people. Remember, Esther's concealed, hidden her identity as a Jew. Mordecai obviously knows, but the people don't. And the Jews have, this edict has gone forth. They were to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. And so Mordecai, through this back and forth conversation, is pleading with her to go. And at first, she's not interested. And can we really blame her? I mean, she knew the risk to go before the king uninvited, a ruthless, mean king. He could immediately have her killed. She's not willing. But that changes. Mordecai is persuasive. Esther then calls for a three-day fast. We know from the scriptures, when they fasted, they would have prayed. No doubt during that time of fasting and praying, and while others are fasting and praying, the Lord changes Esther's heart. For Esther decides to go on behalf of the people. She approaches the king. She receives his favor. She lives. And now as we pick up in verse 3, she continues to pour out her heart for her people, revealing her love for them. Verse 3, notice Esther's posture. Then Esther spoke, Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept. And pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Verse 4. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. For the second time, the king shows her mercy and holds out the golden scepter. Verses 5 and 6. And she said, if it pleased the king... If I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now notice her passion for her people in verse 6. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred you notice the change we don't know for certain but you wonder if in this moment esther was safe if she knew that now the king knew who she was the king would do all that he could to keep her safe she could have said well i'm good i don't care about my people but here she is pleading saying how could i see my people destroyed how could i see my kinfolk my kinship de destroyed we continue verse 7 then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he attended to lay hands on the Jews. I wonder if the king didn't think, well, my, my bride is safe, and that's probably all she cares about. And so why would she want anything more? Like, look, look, I've just hanged Haman. I've given you his house. What more could you possibly want? But then he realizes she's concerned about her people. Verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. We'll come back to that idea in just a moment. Do you see Esther's compassion for her people? Her heart for her people. She's pleading for her people. She's interceding on behalf of her people. 
Warren Wearsby writes, It was her interceding at the throne that saved the people of Israel from slaughter. Now, obviously, we know God is the one that delivers his people. But as we talked about in the last several weeks, God uses people to bring about his will. He uses her intercession. He uses her pleading. He uses her changed heart as she goes before the king pleading on their behalf. Esther risks her life for her people. Esther pleads for her people. Application for you and I. Who are you pleading for right now? Who are you interceding on behalf of? Brothers and sisters, Esther was surrounded by her people who were going to die. You and I are surrounded by lost people. You may live with them. You work with them. You live next door to them. The Jews were in danger of physical death. Those who reject Jesus Christ are in danger of eternal separation from Jesus in a place called hell. You and I need to be like Esther and start pleading for people. Pleading for the salvation of other people. We should be warning others about eternity in hell that awaits all who reject Jesus. We should be pleading for them that they might give their life to Jesus, that they might be saved. Esther could have said, and would we have blamed her? Because maybe the temptation would be there for us. Well, I'm safe. I'm good. Y'all figure this out yourself. But there is urgency here. Her people need her. The, the position that she's in, God can use her, and so she's willing to risk it all for them. There's urgency here. I've shared this before, back in 2013. This is one of those moments in my life that I so vividly remember. 2013, we were vacationing in Pensacola Beach with all of my family, staying in a high-rise condo, and my brother and his wife and Ryan and I were in one condo on one floor. Two floors above us were my mom and dad and all the grandkids. Everything was great until the middle of the night when it wasn't great. All of a sudden, the alarm starts going off. Middle of the night. Have you ever been awoken to a fire alarm or something? You're just you're disoriented anyways. And all of a sudden, there's this, this automated voice that's like saying, please leave the building, like telling you to get out. And in that moment, man, you're thinking, a bunch of foolish kids probably pulled the fire alarm. And that's what happened. But in the middle of the night, you don't know. Like, this could really be a fire. And then my brother and his wife and Ryan and I at the same time realize our kids aren't with us. And so as people are coming down the steps, we're going up the steps to help my mom and dad. And we get the kids and we all calmly get outside. And in that moment, now listen, thankfully there was no fire. But if there was a fire, it would have been urgent. Like you don't play around in that moment. Brothers and sisters, we are living in urgent days. Look, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, but here's what I know. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. One second closer now than we were a second ago. And people need Jesus. And so there must be urgency when it comes to our pleading on behalf of others. Esther could have said, oh, we still got like seven months to go. Eight months before the day of slaughter. She could have twiddled her thumbs or whatever and just, just piddled around. But she knew there was urgency. You needed to do something about this and you needed to do it now. In the scriptures, we see Abraham plead for God to spare the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see Moses pleading and interceding for God to show grace to his fellow Israelites. Paul pleads for Israel to come to Jesus and not to be cut off. And he even says, I'm willing to be cut off if that means you would come. And now here, Esther pleads on behalf of her people. Look, here's the temptation. 
The temptation is for us to be um, like the little scene in, in Charlie and the, the Chocolate Factory. Is that the first one? I think it's the first one. Where they start singing, he and the grandpa, I got a golden ticket. Remember that little, that little silly dancing in the room? Like he couldn't even get out of the bed and all of a sudden he's got the golden ticket and he's healed. Right? It's like, what are we doing? Like that could be the temptation for all of us. I've got a golden ticket. I'm going to heaven. That's where I'm going when I'm dying. I'm just going to enjoy life. But there's urgency. It's not just, I got a golden ticket. It's like if everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved, I want everybody saved. Like I want everybody believing in the name of Jesus. Adoniram Judson formed one of the first missionary organizations here in America, had a burden for others to know Jesus. So prior to his leaving the country to become a missionary, this is what he said. Brethren and friends, these dear young men are going to preach to the heathen that religion, which is your comfort in life, your hope in death, your guide to heaven. Consider yourselves now looking upon them for the last time before you shall meet them at the tribunal of Christ. The Lord of the universe in these last days is about to do a marvelous work, a work of astonishing power and grace. My hearers, God offers you the privilege of aiding in this great work of converting the nations. And then he says this, nothing else is worth living for. But who would not live, labor, and die for this? So as we see Esther risking it all, pleading on behalf of her people, let me ask you, who are you pleading for? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who's the last person you shared Jesus with? Who's the last person that you invited? Maybe they don't go to church and you just invited them. Hey, why don't you come check out Jesus? I'll save a seat for you or I'll come pick you up. Why don't you come and learn more about Jesus? Let us pray for individuals, but let us do more than that. Let us pray for a people. And one of the people that we have a chance to minister to through partnerships with the Most is the Afro-Ecuadorians that live in Ecuador. Sweet people. If you've been there, they are kind people, hospitable people, wonderful people, but they're lost people. They're an unreached people group, which means they have little to no access to the gospel. And if you've been there, you know why. It's not easy to get to them. That's why they don't have the gospel. There's not a lot of Christians just signing up to say, hey, I'll move here. Super convenient. Like in Ecuador, they don't even get mail like we get. Like you can't order from Amazon 15 times a week. Like you can't do that. It's hard to reach them. It's hard to get the gospel there. But listen, they don't know Jesus. And apart from Jesus, they will die and go to hell. And so we pray, we give, we go, we support the moss. We want to see the gospel get to them. If you want to pray for a people, pray for the Afro-Ecuadorian. So there's a change here. There's a change in Mordecai and Esther's status, and we see an obvious change in her heart as she's pleading for the people. But secondly, I want you to notice there is a change in the Jews' outlook. There's a change in the Jews' outlook. So you go back to verse 8, right? It talks about how this edict cannot be revoked. There's no take-backs. There's no, hey, can we just scratch that? Let's remove that and bring the edict back. No, you can't do that. So the king says, look, you can send out another edict. You've got the ring. You can seal it with my authority. And so that's, what, that's what's about to happen. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. 
to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, and this language is very similar to what you read in chapter 3. 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary writes, these were the equivalent of today's racehorses. Swift. Like this is like the, the couriers getting on secretariat. And saying, this is the urgency. We need the fastest horses we can find. Get this edict out. And so these swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud. Now we come to verse 11. And we're going to camp out on verse 11 for just a couple of moments, understanding that we're going to get into this in more detail next week. But verse 11 causes people some problems. Saying that the king, this is, this is what the second edict says saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Now, the edict and the way it's written is very similar to what we see in chapter 3, except one key difference. In this edict, if you notice, I think it's back in verse 9, it says that it was also to the Jews in their script and their language. We don't see that in chapter 3. Why? Because they don't want the Jews to know. Like you can get, find out word of mouth, but we're not going to send a letter to your doorstep saying, hey, you're going to be killed in 10 months. This time, they send it out, and it comes to the Jews in their own language. And basically what it says is when this day comes in the last month, you are allowed to defend yourself. You are allowed self-defense. The hope is, obviously, that a lot of people will get this edict and be like, oh yeah, the king's got their back now, we're not going to attack them. <clears throat> but as we'll see next week in chapter 9, people still attack them. This gives them the ability to defend themselves. But there's something that's worded here that has caused people some problems, and so they try to retranslate it to make it a little easier to stomach. And so this is the phrase. Here's what the ESV says. Any Here's what that means. That means that on this day, when the people were instructed to attack the Jews based upon the first edict, the Jews could kill the men who attacked them, but could also kill the women and children. That's hard. The stomach. So the NIV translates it this way. Any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children. So the way it reads is, if you come attack the Jewish men, they're saying they're also going to attack our wives and our children, therefore we can defend ourselves. Two very different things. Are the Jews instructed, to? they're allowed to kill the women and children, or is this talking about the women and children of them being killed? Here's what I believe from all my commentaries. It is the first one. They have, under this edict, the right to kill the women and children of the men who attack them. Now, chapter 9, they don't do it. It also says they can plunder their goods. When we come to chapter 9, it doesn't tell us they kill any women or children. But here's where some people have issues. When you read the Old Testament, there are times, for example, when the Lord tells King Saul with the Amalekites 
who were the enemies of the Jews, the first ones to attack them when they left Egypt, where God does say they are to go kill all the men, all the women, and all the children. And if you've been in war, you know you're not just supposed to go up and just kill the women and the children who were there. Sometimes, unfortunately, does it happen in a bombing? Yes, but that's not who you're targeting. And yet we read in the Old Testament that they are to kill all the men, all the women, and all the children. And that's hard to stomach. And a lot of people are turned off from God's Word because of that. Next week, we're going to talk about that. Because there's something called holy war. There is a reason that God is saying you have to wipe out this entire generation who is completely against you. And there is a reason why we don't do that today. There's a reason why we're not taking up arms against all religions to try to kill them because Christianity is the only true religion. That's the gospel, number one, which has changed that. But there is a way to understand what's about to happen in chapter 9, that when the people attack, why the Jews are allowed to defend themselves to fight against these people who attack. And so don't, don't try to soften and water down the Scripture. Just let the Scripture speak for itself. And to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand all of the Scriptures. Why we don't do it now, why God allowed it back then. And so if you're struggling with that, Come next week because we're going to talk about holy war as we get into this war that will take place in chapter 9. But let's continue verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read through this fast, so follow along. On one day throughout all the provinces, right, this is the edict of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses. They were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white. I've always known that was the best color. Go cats. No black, no red, no white, no orange, no crimson. Blue and white. We carry on. And royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Here's the change in the Jewish outlook. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, a feast and a holiday. Did you notice the change in the Jews? Let me remind you, chapter 4, verse 3 says the Jews, in response to the first edict, there's fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, because of the second edict, verse 16, there's light and gladness and joy and honor and a feast and a holiday. God's hope of salvation of the Jews changes their outlook. They're changed. They've got hope now. Now, we're still months away, but now they've got hope. And so here's what you have at the end of chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, you have dueling edicts. Dueling edicts. One edict by Haman, with the king's signet ring of approval, that the Jews are to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. Can't be revoked, so it's still out there. Now you have a second edict from Esther and Mordecai with the king's approval that the Jews on this day are allowed to defend themselves. It won't be seen as rebellion. It'll now be seen as self-defense. They can defend themselves. Their future is still uncertain. But at least their resistance is not seen as rebellion. 
That's what Landon Dowden in his commentary writes. So the decree sent out by Haman and the king was irrevocable. So the king, under Esther and Mordecai's leadership, sends out another decree. And this second decree gives them hope. And listen to this quote by guess who? Karen Jobes. Probably my favorite in all of her book. God, king of the universe, cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. God creates Adam and Eve in his own image. They are perfectly made. They are there to know him and worship him and love him and serve him and obey him and follow him. But there's one tree you can't eat from. And he says to them, For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And when they eat of it, God can't say, Oh, wait a minute, let me revoke that first decree. Let me revoke that death and curse. No, when they eat, sin is ushered in. Death is ushered in. The curse is ushered in. The soul who sins must die, for the wages of sin is death. We are surrounded by death. Why doesn't God just revoke it? Because he can't. He can't revoke it. So she continues. Instead, he issues a counter decree of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ. From chapter 3 of Genesis to Revelation is God's decree of this is how you dead people can have life. This is how you rebellious people can be forgiven. It's a second decree. Then she writes, God's irrevocable decree of death and destruction has been countered by his decree that all who believe in his son should not perish under his wrath, but be delivered into eternal life. Man, I wish I would have made that connection myself, but I didn't. But She does, and it's incredible. So as Esther stood with and for her people, in a much greater way, Jesus Christ defends and intercedes for his people. God the Father sent Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son takes on flesh, lives a perfect life, dies, a sinless life, dies in my place, my substitute. His his blood poured out for my sins. My sins transferred to Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for me. He breathed his final breath. He declared, it is finished. And I would imagine all of hell rejoiced. But it ain't over till it's over. Ian God writes, but the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, crucial though it was, is not the end of the story. It wasn't over when the women gathered at the tomb to mourn. It wasn't over until the angels sang, celebrating Christ's resurrection and his ascension to glory. What is more, he now stands before the great king of the cosmos, pleading with the Father for all of his spiritual children. There he says, Father, this is one of my people. How could I bear to see the destruction of this one for his sin? Yes, I know that is what each deserves, but I died so that this one might live. The second decree gives the Jews hope. Why? That they might survive, that they might live. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is alive. Amen? And there is joy, and there is hope, and there is peace, and there is rest. Yes, there might be mourning for a season. That's why your bulletin says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Because this is what the Lord, He does. Verse 2 of It Is Well says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest this blessed assurance control, 
The Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. All of my sin is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. What does it say? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Amen. This is what, amen, this is what Jesus does for us. Sin and death and hell have been defeated by the cross at the empty tomb. Jesus wins. You say, Pastor, I feel like you remind us of this every single week. You know why? Because you're just like me. Oh, how easy it is to forget. How easy it is to forget. Because what's going to happen when you get in that car in about 20, 30 minutes? You're going to leave here on a high. But it won't be long before Satan comes. It won't be long before things start to unravel again, before you realize, man, that joy that I just felt, I'm right back into that joyless feeling. That's why we have to be reminded over and over and over of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So that leads us to the last change. And that is the change, or I'm going to have to preface it by the possible change of the people. Look how chapter 8 ends. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Many of the Persians, many of the Gentiles, began to declare themselves to be Jews. And that's all the author says. I wish he would have elaborated on that. What do you mean? Like, were their declarations genuine? Only God knows. Look, maybe they just tried to give the appearance that they were Jews. I mean, they're not ignorant. Mordecai now has the ring. Mordecai's a Jew. This edict has just gone forth. Obviously, the king is now in support of the Jews. He's going to allow the Jews to defend themselves. So maybe this was nothing more than a false profession. Just a, just a we want to protect ourselves. This is the convenient thing to do. And maybe, just maybe, and I hope so, they begin to follow Yahweh, the one true God. Maybe they begin to realize, man, God really is for his people. We want to be part of that. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Only God truly and fully knows your heart. You know that, brothers and sisters? Only God truly knows my heart. Only God truly knows your heart. God knows. Can I say this? God knows if you're just playing games. God knows if you're just here because your mom and dad make you, or if you're just here because you think it's convenient. There was a time in this country where it was culturally convenient to be a Christian. Those days have passed. It's not really culturally convenient. You say you're a Christian now, and good things don't typically come with that. But there was a time, many of you know that time, where, oh man, you're a Christian doctor, I would like to go to you. You're a Christian lawyer, it means I can, I can trust you. Like it, it carried weight with it. It's not culturally convenient anymore. So maybe, maybe you're just trying to pass yourself off as a Christian. You want the people in this room to think that you're a Christian. I don't know, but hear me. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, there'll be evidence of that. You can only fake that for so long. There'll be evidence, fruit of the Spirit, evidence that Jesus is in you. At times, that transformation may come Really quickly, at other times it may be really slow, but there's going to be evidence that you are changed. After Esther, we're going to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a, le a letter written to the elect exiles. It's written to exiles. It's written to sojourners. By the way, what's Esther and Mordecai? Exiles. Can, 
it's, it's intentional, we're going from Esther to 1 Peter. Because they're exiles, Jews, who've been taken out of their homeland, placed in a foreign land, and they're having to figure it out under the grace in the providence of God. You and I are exiles. I love this place. This is not my home. I'm a temporary citizen. My home, my citizenship is ultimately with Jesus. So we're exiles living, as Peter says, in a world filled with suffering. That's what he's doing. He's writing to elect, elect exiles who are suffering under persecution, under hardship. Life is hard. And he's reminding them of so many important things. And so that's where we're going next. And in the midst of that exile, Peter offers so much hope in Christ, who he is, what he's done for you and for me, who you are in Christ, what you've been given in Christ. The need to be reminded of this over and over and over. Why? Because eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake, and only Jesus Christ can give you eternal life and rescue you from hell. And when he does rescue you, hear me, he changes you. And as he begins to change you, he sends you. He sends all of us out into a world filled with unbelieving, lost people who need Jesus. And he sends us to them. So are you pleading? Are you telling? Are you going? So let me say it one more time. It ain't over till it's over. Once you take your final breath, it's over. By over, I mean your opportunity to bow your knee and heart to Jesus before you meet him face to face. Your opportunity for salvation is now. Your opportunity for salvation is while you have breath. You have opportunity until Jesus comes. Once he returns, if that's before you die, it's over. There's no second chances when you get before Jesus. You have an opportunity now. It's not too late. Right now, it's not over yet. So will you this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, will you do that? Will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Will you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He said, Pastor, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Can I tell you something? You are in a room surrounded by people who've been to some places they wish they never went. Who've done a lot of things they wish they had never done. But by the grace of God, they called upon the name of Jesus and he saved them. And if he can save them, he can save you. So stop running from him. Stop giving all the excuses. You've tried every possible way to satisfy the, the emptiness in your heart. I'm telling you, nothing will satisfy you outside of Jesus Christ. So if you've given your life to Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, is he changing you? I pray that he is. And if he's changing you, then that means you are being a disciple who seeks to make disciples. So who are you telling? Who are you praying for? Will you be a disciple who makes disciples? Will you be a follower of Jesus who is willing to say, hey, I know it's a different situation, but I'll be like Esther. I'll risk it all for my people. Will you say, I'll risk it all for my brothers and sisters in Christ? I'll risk it all so that the lost might be saved so that those who have never heard will hear the name of Jesus. Would you close your eyes and 
bow your head. Father, as we come to this final opportunity to sing, to worship, Lord, we're going to sing, You Alone Can Rescue. Lord, there is nobody else, nobody else here who can rescue. Our children can't rescue us. A pastor can't rescue us. A, a spouse can't rescue us. Oh, Lord, we know the government can't rescue us. A country can't rescue us. But Jesus, you can. You rescue your people. We're going to see that over the next two chapters. When it seemed like it was over and the Jews had no hope, oh God, we're going to be reminded that you're a God who is faithful to his covenant promises. You made a covenant promise through Jesus Christ to all who profess and confess your name. If, they, if, if these people here this morning have put their faith in you, then Jesus, you have given them a covenant and a promise, and you will not break that promise. So Lord, thank you for that. As we come to the song, as we sing, as we worship, oh Lord, may we just respond. May we come and pray. May our hearts just be encouraged. Place somebody upon our heart. Lord, just work and move in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to worship together. You respond as the Spirit leads.
You may be seated for just a moment. You know, we just sang about how the Lord alone can rescue. He's the only one who can rescue us from sin and death and salvation. But he's also the only one that can rescue us here in life, the one who can deliver us. And so, um, just wanted to draw your attention. Sorry, I'm trying to look here so I can get something right. But um, this morning, not wanting to embarrass anybody, but we are called to weep when others weep and to rejoice when others rejoice. And I know over the last month we have been praying for this young man, and he is sitting back there. Sorry to embarrass you, Nathan, but we got to rejoice. Nathan Hilton uh, is back with us this morning. So um, just over, what, about a month ago, or not even quite a month yet, I don't think, about right, right about a month. So um, first time he's been back with us, if you don't know, he was in a really bad car accident, um, and the Lord just protected him and spared him and watched over him. And so he's still healing, still probably having some pain and all that good stuff, but uh, doing well, and so it's good um, to have him back with us. And so we just wanted to give uh, the Lord the praise for that. All right, we got our normal activities tonight. Um, so Awana starts at 5.25, uh, youth, I believe, is 5.45, uh, Revelation Bible study in here at 6. I want to encourage you to come back, get involved, be part, grow, go, and make a difference. Tell somebody about Jesus uh, this week. And so if you'll stand, we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Brian is the deacon of the week, and so he's going to come close us with a word of prayer. God, we do just praise you, and dear God, that uh, in the midst of uh, hopelessness, in the midst of our, our destinies, dear God, you sent your son, uh, dear God, to be uh, the payment for us, to give us life uh, eternal uh, with you. We thank you for that sacrifice and for, uh, for providing for us, dear God, thank you for reminding us of this and uh, the parallels in, in Esther. Um, we just thank you for... Uh, for your word <clears throat> and having it be living and, uh, and moving in our lives, dear God. We do thank you so much uh, for bringing Nathan back today and um, just your hand being uh, on him uh, for these four weeks and saving him um, from this uh, a terrible accident that, that he was in, dear God. We thank you that your hand was on him then, has been on with him uh, throughout. We just... Uh, I uh, praise you for, for seeing him again today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.